Welcome to the Simple Programmer Podcast. Making complex programming simple and fast. With everything from career advice to philosophy. John Summers will show you everything you need. It's the Simple Hey, what's up? John Sonimus here. Just want to take a moment to tell you about an awesome sponsor we have at Simple Programmer, which is Hire.com. I'm sure you know how frustrating it can be to search for a new job. Pushy recruiters trying to recruit you for jobs you have no interest in, jobs you apply for but you never hear from again, and worst of all, going through a whole interview process only to get a ridiculously lowball offer. Well, Hired.com has solved these problems. Hired flips job searching on its head. It actually puts you in control of the job search by letting you fill out one simple application and then having employers actually apply to hire you. How cool is that? You also get access to your own career coach to help you get your next job. Hired has access to over 4,000 employers with big names like Facebook. Plus, your profile is automatically hidden from current and past employers. Oh, and they pay you to get a job. Anyway, as a Simple Programmer listener, if you use the link Hired.com slash Simple Programmer, you can get double the normal $1,000 hiring bonus and get $2,000 when you find your next job on Hired. Just go to Hired.com slash Simple Programmer to get started. Welcome to the Simple Programmer Podcast, a short mix of career advice, philosophy, and soft skills from successful author and software developer, John Sonmez. Hey, what's up? John Sonmez from simpleprogrammer.com. So I've got another interview for you all today. And uh, this one I've, I've been wanting to do for a while. I know some of you have requested that, that I get... Uh, Hasib uh, Qureshi on here, and uh, and I I do I do have him today, and uh, it's uh, it's it's one of those um, interviews that that I've been looking forward to because I think we, we share quite a bit of of background. Uh, Hasib having been a professional poker player, probably you know more more so of a professional poker player than I ever was, but I did play <laughs> poker online for a living for a while, <laughs> a short time before the whole whole thing blew up but um but yeah i thought uh, this would be kind of interesting and uh, his steve has has quite an interesting background he's done uh, d- done quite a few things uh in in his career and and uh, and now i believe you're you're working at airbnb is that correct that is correct i'm now a software engineer for airbnb Awesome. So, actually, w- rather than me trying to patch together, uh, you know, your your history, maybe. Yeah. Um, well, first of all, welcome and thank you. Thank you. Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a pleasure to be on, and uh, I'm I'm glad we had this chance to talk. Uh, yeah. So maybe you can fill in the gaps and, and talk about like where where what is your background? What is your story? <laughs> totally, totally. Well, uh, I, mean, I in the interest of brevity, I'll give you the very very short version. So uh, I used to be a professional poker player. I started playing when I was 16 years old, and my professional career lasted until I was 21. Uh, I stopped playing poker when I was 21. I, in, there, was, there was about a span of five years where I did a bunch of different things. Uh, one of them was I wrote a book. I uh, went back to school. I, because I withdrew from school while I was playing poker professionally. Uh, I also gave away all the money that I made as a poker player. Uh, and about, uh, so I'm 27 now, and about a year and a half ago, slightly more than a year and a half ago now, I decided uh, that, well, actually, I should rewind a little bit more than that. Uh, I decided that I wanted to earn to give. 
which mm-hmm. is something that we might end up talking about later, but essentially what that entailed was trying to uh, earn a high-income career. And so I decided that I wanted to go into the tech industry. I had no training as a programmer. Um, I, I hadn't really done any programming before at all, although I was fairly tech-savvy. Uh, I decided then to enter into a coding boot camp, which I did uh, April last year. Is that right? Yes, that is right. Uh, April last year, I entered into a coding boot camp. I moved from Austin to San Francisco. Uh, I graduated from a coding from that coding boot camp. Uh, I became an instructor at the coding boot camp uh, pretty immediately afterwards. Uh, they then promoted me to director of product, which I did for about nine months. And then after I left, I did a crazy job search that ended up going viral uh, when I wrote about it afterwards. And uh, I got a job as a software engineer at Airbnb, and that's where I work now. Awesome! Wow, there's there's a lot of things to to unpack here. I, I think um, I mean that's that's just a, a really cool story. It, it's kind of interesting. Like I, the thing I love about when I saw your story originally was this idea because like, so many people don't realize that like if you're a hard worker and you're intelligent and you apply yourself, there's really no limit. There's no limit to what you can do. I mean, the fact that you went from, I've got a video on my channel where people just get so upset because I say, oh, I could learn anything in three months mm-hmm. and they, they don't get it because they haven't seen people do it. But you're right. like, the fact that you could go to a boot camp. you said April of last year, Mm-hmm. And and legitimately, I, I would you know again I I haven't seen your code, but I would assume yeah. just based on knowing the kind of person that you are that you're probably a better programmer than a lot of programmers who've been doing it for ten years and and you've only been and it's it's just because so many people don't actually really deeply apply themselves the fact that you could become an instructor. What do you think about that? Like, what what do you think makes it? Or, or I mean, or correct me if you think I'm wrong here, but uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. But, so yeah, I, I, I have a couple of thoughts actually on that on on this thread that you're that you're bringing up. So the first thing is that I think you know, take a programmer who's been programming for ten years, right? Uh, very likely they are very good at something that I'm not very good at, right? right? And uh, probably a lot of things that I'm not very good at, uh, and very likely I'm also very good at things that they're not very good at, right? Like the the space of pro, like you know, if you imagine what it means to be a good programmer, uh, it's it's very easy to think along this one dimensional track, like you know like running or something, right? Or like, you know, uh, sprinting. But being a software engineer is, is nothing like sprinting. Like there's no right. single measure of what makes a good software engineer, uh, especially because there's so many different jobs and so many different roles that fall under the header of software engineer. Right. And so, you know, being that I, so I entered this game, uh, you know, April last year, essentially. That's when I started really developing myself as, an, as a software engineer. And so it was kind of, you know, the way that I approached it is that I wanted to take the straightest line from the starting point to becoming good enough to be a software, professional software developer at a top tech company, right? Right. And if my goals were different, I I would have learned very different things. Um, And so I think, you know, I, I think if most people, even people who are maybe more experienced and aren't as familiar with a lot of the, you know, uh, newer technologies that are coming out that I was trained on, um, I don't think the difference is really that uh, you know there's something special about me or that I have some you know special innate ability that other people don't have. Uh, I think it's more that I started from a very very goal directed place of what I wanted to learn, and right. I just you know I just learned the shit out of that one thing. Exactly. And I think if that's if that's the approach that you take, then you're much more likely to end up being successful at learning that particular thing. 
but learning doesn't just happen for free. Like you don't just get it because you're working hard. You know, right? There, are, uh, most people work hard at, at the thing they're working on. You know, uh, but they don't optimize their process for learning. Right. And that I think is probably one of the big differences. So if I had to answer the question, which is I think sort of implied uh, earlier, was why do you think you were able to become an instructor so quickly uh, and like learn so quickly? I think it's because I, one, I really, really focused on the process of learning. And right. that's something that from my time as a poker player, I kind of learned how to learn. Because really becoming a good poker player is, it's, I mean, becoming a poker player is so different than becoming a programmer because in the world of poker, there are no professors, you know? There are right. no, like, there's, there's what no... What about Howard Letter? Yeah, no, like, <laughs> it's, anything that people are selling you that's a school, yeah. at least it, that was back at the time that I was uh, a professional poker player, was bullshit. You know, right. Everything, everything that you, that was structured and, like, could be handed to you was snake oil, like, almost right. certainly. And so if you wanted to become a good poker player, you had to, you know, you were your own professor, right? Like, you had to go out and find the information and teach yourself uh, and, you know, you couldn't trust anyone, right? You right. couldn't trust that any received knowledge was actually good because in the world of poker, there's a lot of protecting information, right? It's kind of right. not like a lot of other domains where the way that you learn uh, best practices and the way that you learn, you know, what's good and what's bad is by, you know, following or reading the people who are the best. In poker, at least in the time that I was playing, you couldn't really do that because right. the people who were the best weren't sharing what they were doing. The people who were sharing what they were doing were usually the people who were bullshit artists uh, and who weren't good enough to just make money actually playing poker. Um, and so you ha I, I think, you know, for at least the generation of poker players around the time that I was coming up, uh, the people who ended up becoming really good were the people who learned how to learn. Exactly. And I think that's a skill that I've really, really, uh, you know, has transferred fairly well into other domains. And so, you know, a lot of stuff that I did as a programmer, other people didn't have the instinct to do. Uh, and I think a lot of those things probably added up in yeah. the long run of learning. No, that uh, makes a lot of sense. sense. I mean, when, when you say learning how to learn, that's, that's something that I'm, I'm, I'm super big on. Mm. I've put together, a, a, in fact, one of, the, one of my courses is 10 Ways to Learn Anything Quickly, and it's about learning how to learn. I, I, when I do talks, I talk about that being the most valuable skill that you can possibly have in your life is learning how to learn. So I totally agree with you. And it's kind of interesting too. I think also, you know, drawing a parallel to poker, like when I was teaching myself poker, a lot of things that we learn in life, we learn by like we, you, by results. So we're like, okay, I did this thing and I got a good result. So it's a re but but poker is one of those things that you have to divorce yourself from the results and say, right. you know, I'm going to follow this thing. And sometimes when I, you know, when there's four to the flush and I, and I, and I draw, I'm going to, I'm going to lose, even though I made the right statistically correct that I made a positive EV move, yeah. but, but it's, but it, I got slapped on the wrist for it. And then sometimes when you make the wrong moves, you win. Right. And so you've yeah. got it like, but, but I, I, some like for me at least, I found that that same kind of thinking, like I could take that exact same thing that made me good at poker, the divorcing myself from the results, trusting the process, understanding mm -hmm. and learning that way, and and apply it to stock market and to programming. Eventually, when when I was learning things, because so many people learn by by what feels good, <laughs> that's right. not like our natural, but you have to fight that, and that seems like an accelerated course. Um, <laughs> 
it's, it's interesting though, right? Because I think, so programming is certainly a lot more deterministic than poker. Like in poker, right. you're absolutely right, where you cannot just directly one-for-one one trust the feedback that poker is giving you because sometimes when you win, you've made the wrong play. Right. And sometimes when you lose, you've made the right play. And if you just let poker calibrate you, like if, if you know, if you can imagine like poker essentially being your teacher and you listening wholeheartedly to everything poker saying, if you just accept on the face, okay, when things go bad, I, I'm gonna do less of that. When things do well, I'm gonna do more of that. Uh, there's so much noise and so much randomness that like you're just gonna suck as a player if you cannot see through it. Right. Uh, in, in programming on the other hand, like the program either runs or it doesn't. It's either right. correct or it doesn't, right? Like in a way, in a sense, you could say that there's no noise in the feedback that a program gives you about whether or not it works. But I think, but I don't think it's the end of the story because one thing that you don't always get feedback on, or, and, and quite often you don't, is not just whether the code runs or not, but whether your process in writing that code was good. Exactly. Right? And whether the code that you wrote is actually well-written, whether it's maintainable, whether it's you know, uh, decomposed effectively, right? All of those things, the program is not gonna tell you whether you did that right or wrong. All the program will tell you is whether your output is correct. Exactly. And, you know, one of the things that I remember when I was going through bootcamp is that I was obsessive relative to other people about the process and how well we were writing the code as opposed to just ensuring that the output was correct. Exactly, yep. And, you know, that's something that it's, it's really hard to learn that late, you know? Yes. If you don't start and go through your entire process of being a programmer, constantly thinking about this sort of stuff and giving yourself feedback, especially soliciting feedback from others if they're able to give it to you, but if they're not able to give it to you, you know, give yourself that feedback uh, and to trust that feedback over and above, does the program run or not, right? right. There are times when the program runs and the code you've written is shitty. And there are times the program doesn't run and actually the code you've written is great. You just got to figure out what that, what that bug is that's preventing this program from you know, being correct. Exactly. Yeah, that, yeah that's, that's very true. And, and it, you know, it's kind of interesting. I think a lot of beginner programmers don't realize that the, the code is written for humans because right. that's, I mean, that's, that's the primary consumption is like you know, the, the difference between the code being good or, or bad is, is how well can someone else understand that that code because it's making it correct is you know is is one thing but but mm -hmm. actually writing good code that someone would want to hire you for and in, in, in the the long term maintenance of the application is going to be based on how how well that how readable that code is how understandable right. how much but yeah that's uh, one thing that working at Airbnb has kind of um, has, has somewhat surprised me mm -hmm. is that it I've realized how exactly along the lines of what you're saying how much more important it is to I mean, code is is written once, maybe twice, and then read a hundred times. You know, and, yeah. uh, you know, fifty of those times are probably going to be by you, uh, but fifty of those times are also going to be other people who are going to have to be fixing your shit when you're not there. Exactly. So, uh, it, it it it's so much more uh, the case than I, I think I, I even knew before I started working in in an actual you know in an industry job that the thing that matters most in code that you write for production is whether another programmer can understand and debug it on its face, right? It, it basically, it, it pay, it's so much more important than performance. Exactly. It's readability, understandability, testability. Um, and like, it's, like, that's always a very explicit trade-off that you have to decide to make 
of, hey, I'm going to make this harder to understand in order to make it perform better, in order to do X or Y or Z, right? Like that's always the first consideration is could someone else understand and change this easily? Right, exactly. Yeah, that, that's, it's, it's very true. I think that's what, and, and it's one of those things where when I interview programmers, when I look at their code, I can look at someone's code in, in like 10 minutes and I can get a pretty good idea, like a 90% of how good they are just based on how readable their code is. Because I, I know, you know, you look at that code and you're like, okay, this, this person, I, I don't really need to, like, I'm going to test them technically, but if I'm seeing this level of understandability in the code, it, it sort of indicates that they know a lot more right. depth than that, they, that somehow they've, you know, they, if you've reached that point, you, you've probably got the rest of the package. Totally, totally. It <laughs> reminds me, um, in a way, I think it's very analogous to, um, to writing, right? Just mm -hmm. like writing, writing English. Um, there's, there's this quote that I think is, is something of a misquote, but I think originally it's Oscar Wilde or somebody who, who, you know, they wrote a letter to somebody and they said, uh, it was some long rambling letter, and they say, I apologize for the length of this letter because I didn't have time to make it short. Exactly, yeah. And it's kind of the same thing in programming, right? Like when you read somebody and they've, they've written some code or they've added some feature and the code is just super short and easy to understand, you're like, this must be a really good programmer because you know what? Uh, I think what a lot of what a lot of neuroprogrammers tend to mistake is complexity for skill. Uh, usually, if if something that you've made is very complex, it's probably bad, and it's exactly. probably adding more technical debt than it's actually solving problems. Um, now, that's obviously not always true. And you know, anytime that I make a generalization like that, like yes, there's going to be some you know core algorithm in your app that just you know runs you know hundreds of thousands of times per minute or per second. And that needs to be optimized like crazy, and that's totally that's totally the case in a lot of a lot of domains. Um, but especially in web development, most of the time, uh, especially if you're in a larger team, uh, most of the time, these things roughly hold true. That you right. want to first be thinking about readability before you even start contemplating what you can do to optimize something, especially when you're not even sure that it's going to be a performance bottleneck, which is right. often hard to know until you actually productionize it or you, you have a better idea of like what the access patterns are going to be. Right. Yeah. I mean, even, even, even in, in the complexity, right. When things are, there's still simplicity within the complexity, I think in, in a good design, yeah. right. Because, mm -hmm. you know, you could, you, a well-designed automo automobile, for example, you open up the hood and like all the cables are nicely, <laughs> like it's right, like, right, it's yeah. a complicated piece of machinery. Like this is not a simple thing, but every single component is simple and streamlined. And like you, you, if you break it down, if you look at every abstraction, that all of those things are are simple, so you can right. understand, you know, the the bigger picture. And yeah, that's, I mean, software at its heart is complex, right? It's like, but but the the question is, can you dig in there and, and get it? And, and is it simple? Like, can you are the abstractions at such a level that you can you have logical steps to go from one place to the other and, and understand what you're doing? Yeah, I think that's a great analogy, and I completely agree. So one thing I want to ask you, well, out of curiosity, have you did you ever play Magic: The Gathering? <laughs> I did not actually. I have I have some close friends who did, but I did not personally. Because I'm there. There's there's kind of an interesting connection here because I found you know and and I thought it was funny because I I had a background playing Ma I played Magic Gathering professionally for for a while and I know a lot of poker players did right like yeah, yeah, a lot yeah. of a lot of people jump and then a lot of them actually became software developers or were software developers either Magic Gathering players or poker players uh, so there's kind of this connection and and I think that there's 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 some or actually you know the trading 
Wall Street trading uh, part of it too, doing a, a right. complex option trading or, or hedge funds. Mm -hmm. uh, there's there's another kind of overlap. So I think there there's kind of this thing, which I wanted to get your take on it of, and, 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 I, and I kind of suspect it too, like the fact that you're able to accelerate so quickly in this field, it almost it almost feels to me like if you master one thing, and, and these are things that have to be mastered, like Magic the Gathering or poker, or, you know, you, you can't just be good at these things. Otherwise, you're just going to, you're horrible, right? You have to become, the, the, you have to master these things in order to actually continue. So it seems like that mastery carries over, and maybe it has is related to learning how to learn. But um, but have you noticed that like that as you master more and more things, mm -hmm. like to that level that most people never attain, that oh. other things become easier for you, even then when they're totally unrelated, at least at a surface level. So I think uh, I think that's true, and some of that I would attribute to, like I said, learning how to learn, and also mm -hmm. being being familiar with the process of mastery, right? Where you know the the hard part at the beginning where you're just getting in tons of raw experience and kind of calibrating your your senses right like to, you know to me being that i have gone through that process already right. i'm kind of not really surprised right or, or sort of you know there's there, i'm not i'm much less likely to hit a roadblock and be like oh crap i'm not you know i'm learning at a different rate now things are changing i'm now worried that i'm not learning as fast um, for me like i just have total confidence in the process that i went through that i just know if i do these things I'm going to get good. I don't know how good, you know, but I know that I'm going to get good in what I think is roughly the fastest and densest, you know, uh, way possible. Um, so I think there is that. Uh, I think another element is that it's certainly true that in a domain like Magic the Gathering or in poker or in, you know, quantitative uh, hedge funds or whatever, right? Like when you're when you're in a very analytical domain um, and you like I think, you know, poker, magic, uh, chess. These are all good examples of games that are very, very analytical and that reward uh, and train you to think in just a, a pure, rigorous, and you know, kind of unselfconscious way. Where right. like it's not about you; it's about the game. It's about what's in front of you, right? right. It sort of takes you out of yourself. And I think if you just do that, if you just do the shit out of that for years, you become very good at that skill. Uh, and that is one thing that I think a lot of beginner programmers have a lot of trouble with, which is like, you know, when you're programming, I, th I think when you're a beginner and you're programming, uh, it's super easy to get emotional, right? Yeah. When yeah. the code isn't running, it's not doing what you want, yeah. you can't figure out what this bug is, right? And uh, when you, I think when you work in one of the, these domains uh, and you, you know, gain mastery of chess or poker or whatever, you just learn to like kind of lose yourself to the game and right. totally trust what it's saying, right? Yeah. So like, in poker, I mean, it's not that, when, when I say that, what I don't mean is that, okay, the game is always right and the feedback it's giving me, but the game is always the game. You know, the game, like, I don't get to control anything. You know, right. I don't get to control whether I win a chess match. You know, chess decides that. I don't right. get to control whether I get a good hand. Poker decides that. And in the same way, I don't get to decide whether the code runs. You know, the, the compiler decides that. Or exactly. the, you know, the interpreter decides that. Yeah, and, it's not personal. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's not personal, right? It's not about yeah. you. It's yeah. about the process that you're undergoing. And you just keep tinkering and you keep working until the system gives you, you know, it, like it locks the door. And yeah. uh, I think in a lot of these domains, you just get used to that. You develop that virtue. Um, so that, I think, is another thing. And the last thing that I'd, I'd say is that it probably just selects for the same kinds of people, you know, who are, are the kinds of people who are good at, you know, going deep down a rabbit hole and becoming very, very, um, 
you know, just like going into their flow of really, really deeply trying to analyze this one thing and then getting really good at it, right? Like, I mean, obviously, I think it selects for a certain type of person who is very analytical and who is, um, you know, able to delve deep into a particular topic at the, you know, uh, and kind of, kind of shut off a lot of other noise. Uh, and that's, I think, again, it's, it's somewhat hard for people to, to, to do that for the average person. Yeah. No, they, yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. I think that what you said, the, the, especially, you know, one of the things that I was actually going to ask you about too, because I, cause I found that this is at least, you know, this has been my experience when, when I was playing poker or magic or even, even trading stocks is that there were people that knew like at the top level, 99% of the people know the correct strategy or know close to optimal strategy. But right what made the best, but, 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 but more than, but maybe 99% of people couldn't execute because of emotions. Right. And, and that seems like that's, you know, like a prerequisite. Like I, I found that, you know, I had to really develop a stoic philosophy in life in order to be good at poker. And I was, and I was beating people that were, that had more experience and more knowledge than me, but it was because I could execute because I could do it emotionlessly because I could not go on tilt. I could, and the same thing yeah. I found in, in doing real estate investment or stocks or in, in, in the parallel to, to software development. So what, so I, I was curious about what you thought about the emotional mastery and the, and the stoic kind mm -hmm. of how that may have benefited your life. Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely right. I think that, you know, uh, in order to, in order to succeed at the highest levels in most of these domains, you you need to have some emotional self mastery, and this is not something that most. Uh, it's not something that you'll just learn in life. Like you will not learn how to do that unless life kind of demands it from you. You know, uh, right. and there are I think there are pretty pretty few people who I know who haven't done something like competed at a very high level in a particular field who have anywhere near that that level of emotional self mastery. Um, and you know, you, I, I think it's very hard to get. And uh, there are very few things that actually train it to a to a significant degree. I do think that it it helps a lot. Like I'm, I'm somebody who now you know, this many years later in my own personal development, um, you know, like it's pretty it's pretty hard to phase me. You yeah. know, like when something goes wrong when something is bad. Uh, one thing that I learned from poker at a very early age. I mean, I was you know 16, 17, 18 years old when I was losing tens, hundreds of thousands of dollars in a given yeah. day, in a night. And, you know, I think one of the things you learn is you don't just learn that it doesn't really matter in the long run. That's one thing you learn because these things happen and they happen and they happen and it never kills you. Right. You always go on and you always wake up the next day and you can go back at it again. Um, but the, the other thing that you, you just realize is that everything is transient. You know, like yeah. no matter how bad you feel like your loss today was, uh, you know, it tomorrow, the day after tomorrow, a week from now, you're going to barely even remember that it happened. And you're exactly. just, that's going to be your new normal. That's going to be your new here, you know? Uh, and I guess the, just having faith in your own power to habituate. Yes. And, you know, just get used to this, the new environment that you're, that you're into. Um, so when I was doing my job search, right, uh, part of the reason why, uh, and if people haven't read, you might want to look up um, this blog post that I wrote that went viral after I, Got a job at Airbnb. Uh, it, it was called uh, Hello, Hello, or I think it's Farewell App Academy. Hello, Airbnb, where I basically talked about uh, the my job search process. And in that job search process, you know, I thought I was 
hot shit, right? Like I had, uh, you know, risen in this coding bootcamp. I was the top of my class. I became an instructor. I did all this stuff. And I was like, man, I, I am good. I know my shit. I feel really confident. Uh, I've, you know, I've been honing this set of skills and I'm pretty sure, you know, given that like I've been training students on going through job interviews, uh, yeah. and like that I will be totally fine and that I'll be able to get a job easily in industry. And what I found was that initially that was not at all the case because right. every single company that I applied to, I mean, looking at my resume, uh, yeah. you know, being this, like, I, so I studied English and philosophy in school and, uh, I, you know, I had a super weird background. I used to be a poker player and I wrote a book and then I was, you know, did a coding bootcamp, but then I'm director of product, which is like not an obviously technical role. Uh, and so they, I, I, I'm pretty sure that they just took, saw my resume and then just directly transferred it to the trash can. Exactly. Uh, and so, you know, that I remember, uh, really, really rattled me when I, when I saw that nobody was interested in giving me a chance. You know, nobody was interested in even seeing whether I could do a programming interview, you know, whether I was good enough to even make their bar. Uh, and I remember, you know, like uh, some night when I, you know, getting, you know, the 30th rejection that uh, feeling like shit, like I'm not able to pierce through this wall. Like there's nothing I can do to get people to acknowledge uh, that I can do this. Right. Like, I, I might just not even have a chance. Um, and the, the thing is, I think, about emotional self-mastery, and I think about tilt, right? So uh, what, what, I guess one thing I, I don't think I mentioned is that after I quit poker, I worked for a while as a mental coach to other professional poker players. Where oh, I yeah, so I basically coached them on the psychological side of poker. So a lot of the stuff about emotional self-mastery, you know, uh, trying to construct a good regimen for learning and for... Uh, you know, structure in, in, in the way you pursue poker. So one of the things that I, uh, one of the things that I kind of knew was that I, I was sort of used to, well, what, what do I want to say? I guess the way that I put it is that like the thing about people who are good at resisting tilt is not that they don't feel the tilt in the first place, right? Like right. what a lot of people misunderstand about emotional self-mastery is they think it's not feeling emotions. Right. And right. that's not a thing. There's no right. one who doesn't feel emotions. There's no one who doesn't feel a punch in the stomach when they lose a huge pot or when they get, you know, uh, don't pass an interview or when, you know, they get torn up in a code review or whatever, right? Everybody feels that. The question and the difference is what you do once you realize you're having that feeling. Right. So the, the, the difference between somebody who has really strong emotional self-mastery is their relationship to their emotions, not the emotions that they have. So, right. you know, I totally felt scared and, uh, you know, uh, feelings of self-doubt and like I didn't know if I was ever going to be able to do this. Uh, and I just knew that those feelings were transient and those feelings were going to go away and it didn't really matter whether I had those feelings. The thing I should do was still the same, which is you know, go to bed next morning, wake back up and go back at it and just yep. keep going, you know, and that's almost always the answer, right? Is just exactly. wake up the next day, you know, throw some cold water on your face and get back out there and keep grinding. Because if you have confidence in your process, then you just know that even though, you know, I lost this pot, it sucks. I lost a lot of money, but I know that I'm doing the right thing. And yep. it doesn't really matter what poker tells me. And in the same way, you know, whether I won or lose, won or lost, in the same way, it kind of doesn't really matter what the job market tells me whether I got this job or not. I know the answer is still go out there and keep hustling and keep 
doing what I need to do in order to make sure that it happens for me. Yeah, no, that, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That's, uh, you know, one of the things I always talk about is, is uh, simple programmers trusting the process because I, I feel like that's so important, the ability to divorce the results from the, from from the process once you know that the process you know this is eventually going to work logically right and, and you're it doesn't mean that you're just like blindly following the thing you're going to change the strategy but you're you're going to re you're going to respond instead of react whereas right. most people react they're like oh, oh i feel bad so i'm going to quit right and it's like right. no quitting is can be a logical decision yeah. or changing course but it's like where is it coming from is it coming from that like you said that stomach punch where you're like oh okay so that's why you're not or, or even just you know you're not going to the gym this morning is because you you don't feel like going to the gym or you're not going right. for that run or is it because you've logically decided that you actually need more rest and there's, yeah. there's a huge huge difference totally. there that's uh yeah that that's 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 really interesting i i also think you know what to kind of bridge into something that that i found also is um well well i, I you know one, one thing that came up while you're we were talking about that is uh one of the like the turning point for me in poker was actually this point where i was i was losing money i wasn't getting good i was reading a lot of books and stuff and i kept on putting like 200 bucks on my account right on my online account yeah. and then one day i was like you know what john no more You've got 15 cents on your account right now. That's what you got. Mm -hmm. And I, 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 I said, I'm going to grind my way up from 50. I was playing penny on the penny <laughs> tables, right? Uh, <laughs> and I ground my way yeah, up okay, like, okay. to $50,000 on the account mm -hmm. from 15 cents. And that's where, because that's where I got the emotional resilience. That's where I was yeah. like, because I had to lower myself because I was used to playing, you know, I was, I was putting 200 bucks on my account and playing $50 tournaments. And I had to like, like get to the point where it's like, okay, I, it's not about the, the feeling. It's about the execution, execution, execution. Right. And right. Uh, I felt like that was a huge benefit for me. Yeah. I, I think you raise a really good point. And this is actually, this is actually another principle that I've kind of learned to live by. I think from the time that I was a poker player, um, you know, a lot of people ask me when they hear my story of like, wow, you, you were so. Uh, you're so hardworking. You're so. How did you believe in yourself so much? Or you know, I don't know stuff like this that just totally doesn't even make sense to me when I hear stuff like that. Because you know, to me, uh, I know that I am a coward. Like I know that I am fearful. I know that I am not going to do the hard thing if I'm given a choice not to. Right. Right. The, the way I deal with that is I engineer my environment to not give me that choice. Exactly, right? like exactly. The, the, way that, the way that I see it is that you know, I am only a person who accomplishes fucking anything because I don't give myself the choice not to. You right. Know? And so it's like the, the, the analogy that I often tell people is just you know, I lock myself in a room and throw away the key because yep. I know if I have that key with me, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use it to unlock the door and get out of the fucking room because I don't want to <laughs> be there. You know? Exactly. Uh, and so, yeah, like, I think there's so much value and drive and power that comes from necessity you know just like yep. for you when you were like i'm not going to deposit anymore and so i just have to do what it takes to grind up these 15 cents and not lose them you know when i started playing poker i was i was 16 years old i was underage and uh i i actually found this online promotion that would give me 50 bucks to start my career with and um so actually what happened was there's was, there's was this bonus with party poker which is a you know a site that was open to us players back then in 2006 or seven yeah. Uh, and you had to scan in your driver's license and they would give you 50 bucks to like start gambling, you know? Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. But I didn't have a driver's license. I was 16. 
Uh, and so what I did is I went on Google Images, and this is like back in 2006, so <laughs> you can just like find a driver's license that wasn't blurred out or anything. Nice. So I found, it was like some old lady from Maryland. And that was the only driver's license I could find, and that's how I started my career was with these 50 bucks. Uh, and I could not deposit. Yeah. Like, there was no way for me to get more money. And so right. I just had to very meticulously grind up these $50, slowly but surely. Uh, and you know, I you know, started at the five cent, 10 cent games and worked my way up. Uh, until you know, after about a year, I think I, I turned that fifty dollars into over a hundred thousand dollars, and like I did that because I had to. Yeah, you know, I had no choice, and I'm almost certain that if I had the ability to just like deposit another ten bucks or twenty bucks, I wouldn't have done that with the same amount of rigor. You know, and it's kind of exactly. the same way where you know, how did I learn how to program so quickly? Well, I I moved out to San Francisco with no option, but. Yeah. To become a good programmer, otherwise I was just going to starve and you know pay myself into bankruptcy on rent. So that that's what made it happen, you know. Uh, and so I think finding circumstances like that you can engineer into your life that yeah. force you to do the thing that you know you otherwise wouldn't do. Um, I think that's an extremely valuable and often overlooked skill of people who end up uh, becoming successful. At exactly. Yeah, yeah, I call it burning the boats where you, you you've uh, got no, you know, you got no off, you got no retreat, you got to you got to move forward. And and I I actually facilitate my whole life kind of around I set rules for myself so like, you know, I eat one meal a day hmm. and I've been doing that for a long time and it's like people are like is that hard? It's like, well, it would be hard if I had to make the decision every day whether I was going to do it or not, but right. because I've right. made it a rule in my life and hmm. and the same thing with my workouts, it's like I, there's not an option. I have yeah. to. I don't have to make decision. When you go to the when you go to eat lunch and you're like, should I go with my friends and go to Burger King or should I eat this or or eat a salad the salad that I packed? You yeah. got to make a decision. I don't make a decision because yeah. I, I know that I suck at. The, <laughs> I have weak willpower, just like <laughs> just like, just right, like right. everyone else. But I just remove right. as many decisions from my life as possible and script it. Yeah. And you know, plan ahead, and then you know, and again, I, I guess I probably got that from some from Magic Gathering and poker, like because mm -hmm. with with poker, I'd have the plan. I know what I'm. At. I know what's going to happen in this situation. I know I've thought about it ahead of time. Right. Not because when you think about things, when you have the emotion attached, you don't make clear decisions. You you make bad totally. decisions. Yeah. So you. But um, so so you know, one thing also that that I think was is interesting i wanted to segue as we as we wrap up here into into the the whole the the kind of altruism the effect of altruism because yeah. you know, that's another thing like one one thing i started doing i guess it's been like 10 years ago i mean i don't i don't i don't give you you give away a lot more but but i've been giving 10 percent of everything i that i earn to uh to orphans in in india and just as a like like i i do that not even out of a religious thing but just out of um just wanting to make a difference, like, and and also just the benefit that I get from being able to let go of things and, and not not hold on to them so tightly, so tightly because I have this abundant. And, and you know, I did this when I wasn't making a lot of money, and then when I became a millionaire, I still I still continued to to do this, and it became a lot more money. But I'm I'm curious how that like how that is well maybe if you can talk about what you're doing but but how that kind of plays into all this because for me it was very connected it was like once i realized like like you said it's like like it, i don't know that that i could it, it could tomorrow's going to come and i have the same opportunity like i can making money is not hard mm -hmm. per se like it's not a limited it's i guess this is abundance mindset and this kind of keeps me in it 
what, what's your thoughts? Like, what's your psychology behind all this? Why did you get started doing that? And, and I don't know, just right. you're kind of. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, so I think the, the germ of what really a lot of these and basically giving to charity in my relationship with altruism, um, I, I mean, it really started when I decided to give away my money. Mm-hmm. And it was something on the order of about half a million dollars that I that I'd saved up from from my career as a poker player, and you know, I lived off that for about five years, and then I decided to give it away. And the a lot of the premise of me doing that, I mean, one was that feeling that um, for one, I didn't feel like I needed that money. Uh, in a way, it felt almost like that money was holding me back from actually being. Uh, kind of fully self-reliant and challenged. Like, you know, you can't really burn that boat if that boat is, is you know, $500,000 wide. You know what I mean? If it's a uh, yacht. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. I mean, you're yeah. not going to burn a yacht very effectively or something's probably going to go wrong if you do that. Yeah. Uh, but, that, so that was part of it. And it, it was also wanting to not live in the shadow of something that I had done uh, as a teenager, right? Like, always feeling like, you know, this thing that I did when I was, you know, 18, 19 and a professional poker player, making all this money and being really successful is like the best thing I'm going to ever do. And I was like, fuck that. You know, I, I have to throw that away and be totally confident that what poker gave me is the, the learning and the knowledge and the self-mastery that I take with me somewhere else. You know? right. uh, it's not the money that matters. Um, and then the last thing that really affected me was Realizing how much, and I think, you know, I learned this lesson at an early age, but how much money does not bring happiness, you know? Yes. Like, I think especially being, uh, being young and being a, a, a successful, you know, making a lot of money at a young age, it's, it's just so obvious looking around at the environment of people who, who earn a lot of money that there's no connection past, you know, the, the very minimal threshold of wealth between right. money and happiness. Um, and so... If you, if you just know that, like, you know, for me, I just know that, like, my happiness is not at all fungible through money. Like, I, I cannot trade money for happiness. Like, there's no way to do that for me. You know, I just honestly don't need that much. And I just know enough about myself to know that I'm just not particularly materially motivated. So what that means for me is that, one, it doesn't really matter that much to me to have money. And the other thing you have to come to appreciate is how powerful money is in many other parts of the world and in many other places and in many other domains. Uh, and so, you know, donating money to, you know, somewhere in Africa where, right. you know, people live off of less than $1 a day, right? Uh, you know, $1,000 of a donation is, is like doubling somebody's annual salary. Which exactly. Is, which, is, which is an insane amount of impact that you can have with an amount of money that might seem, you know, not trivial, but not life-changing to somebody in the West. Uh, and so realizing just how much more impact and how much uh, the work that you do can reduce the suffering in the world, that eventually led me to uh, learning about effective altruism. And so effective altruism is this movement that came out of Oxford and Cambridge in like the early 2010s, basically. It kind of started fairly recently. And the whole idea of effective altruism is basically being rigorous and scientific about the way that you are altruistic. Right. Right. So instead of just kind of doing things to feel good or doing things that sound good or that are impressive to people or that give you this sort of warm glow on the inside of like, hey, I'm helping, you know, but instead treating, helping people with the same rigor and intensity that we treat, you know, uh, 
science or the, the way that we treat, you know, anything else that you'd spend tons of money on, right? Like a business investment, you know, right. where you really like the burden of proof is very high. Uh, and you just need to leverage actual evidence in order to say, Hey, I think this is a good charity to give to because exactly. the reality is, uh, and this is very counterintuitive, but the reality is that most charities are not very effective. Right. Even it's very true. And so and, and what, what people think that means is they think that means that like, Oh, well, that means that they're, spending a bunch of money on their staff, or it means that they're, you know, I don't know, siphoning away funds or something like that. That's not what that means. Uh, an organization can spend a lot on its staff and still be really effective, or it can spend almost nothing on its staff and be totally ineffective, right? Uh, the thing that matters is, you know, per dollar fundraised, what actually happens? Right. Who gets helped? And yeah. how much do they get helped, right? That is the only question that actually matters. You know, so when you're judging a business, you, nobody looks at a business and says like, oh, okay, they donate, you know, they give 30% of their income they pay to their employees, so therefore it's a badly run business, right? <laughs> nobody even right. thinks that it's a meaningful thing to even compare businesses on, you know? Uh, what matters is how much they're actually producing the thing they're producing. Exactly. Uh, and so for, for a charity, it's exactly the same way, where it doesn't matter how much of their percentage of the funds are going to X, Y, or Z. What matters is how much impact are they having. Um, and so... One of, the, uh, one of the ideas that came out of effective altruism was this idea of earning to give. Right. And uh, you know, around the, this was around 2013, 2014 when I was learning about this, and I was really uncertain what I wanted to do with my life. So this is shortly after I gave away my money. I uh, had written this book about poker, and I knew I wanted to move forward and figure out what the next thing was going to be, and I wasn't really sure what it was. Um, and this idea of earning to give is basically this. I'll give you the, the sort of short spiel. Um, you know, the idea is that if you are somebody in the first world and you're somebody who's very intelligent, you're educated, you're, you're free, uh, you're, you know, you're, not, um, you're not burdened by ill health or you know, a lot of these other things that it's going to make your life a lot more challenging and limit your economic mobility, um, you actually have relatively unfettered access to some of the most amazing wealth on planet Earth. Right. right. And that's actually really weird. It's really weird that it's as easy as it is. Like for someone like me who doesn't have any, you know, I didn't go to, you know, Yale. I didn't, you know, study some, you know, really highly valuable thing in school. Like I have none of the credentials that someone probably should have in order to have easy economic mobility. But I just do because I'm a relatively intelligent person and I live in the United States. Exactly. Right. There's, there's really nothing else that I need in order to have access to some of the most lucrative markets on planet Earth. Right. And if you're somebody who's just born in some random country, uh, on, you know, in the Eastern Hemisphere, you just, it doesn't matter, right? Like, it doesn't matter how smart you are, it doesn't matter how much you want it, it is just closed off to you, right? Um, and so it, 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 it's very, uh, it's amazingly easy to just decide, hey, I'm going to go and, you know, do the work to pursue a high-earning career uh, and get access to this enormous wealth that you can just get if you, like, I don't know, you go into finance or if you go into software engineering, you just get paid a lot of money. And you know, it's not because like people in India can't do it, but for whatever reason, if you're in the United States and you just start to becoming a software engineer, you get paid a ton of money. And that money is so uh, can be put to so much effective use in other parts of the world that one of the most effective things you could do, probably even more effective than a lot of direct work of like going and directly working for a charity, is to go and work in one of these industries that pays an outsized income. Exactly. And donate that money to basically have somebody do the work that you might otherwise do, or more people than just yourself would otherwise do working for a nonprofit. 
right? Right, leverage. Uh, so, exactly, leverage. Yeah. Uh, and so that is the whole idea of earning to give. So when I heard that argument as that potentially being the most effective thing that you could do with your life, I was like, shit, that totally makes sense. Yeah. And that seems like something that I'm uniquely well-suited for. So I decided to go and try to pursue a high-earning career. And that's, that is actually what motivated me to come into the tech industry. Uh, and so all of this was really spurred by the goal of earning to give. And so as soon as I got my first job, which was actually being an instructor at App Academy, uh, I started giving 33% of my pre-tax income to high-impact charities. Um, and that, that is basically my, you know, that's like my, uh, my North Star, essentially. Like that's, that's what keeps me trying to optimize my career and trying to be aggressive and it's actually, in a way, like a lot of what motivated me to negotiate aggressively when I was looking for a new job, because I knew that, like, you know, it's not really about me. It's about the goal that I came out here to accomplish, which is to earn as much money as possible so I can donate as much as possible to help improve the world. You know, like this to me is something that's sufficiently motivating and also important to actually pursue, because if it was just about money, the truth is I probably wouldn't care. Exactly. Like, I'm, I'm actually not very motivated by money. And I think it's also, it, it tends to be true at the very highest levels of most uh, you know, financially lucrative enterprises that it's not really about money anymore as the way that most people think it's about money, right? In the, in the sense that like, you know, the very best hedge fund managers in the world, like they don't actually need more money. They don't right. really in a sense want more money. What they want is more of the thing that they are motivated by, which is usually prestige or you know, a challenge or being better than somebody else, right? Competition. Uh, but the money, money itself just, I don't know. I, I think it, it's, it, it's amazing how little money buys, uh, which I think before you actually have money, um, you know, I think many of your illusions will get shattered. Exactly. Once you actually, uh, once you actually have access to money and you realize just as a human being, you know, you are not wired to be happy from material things, you know? Yeah. It's just like humans are not designed to, to, to get happy from material things. And uh, you know, you will, you will fight a very uphill battle if you wanna to try to make yourself happy uh, through, through money. Uh, but I think there are a lot of other things such as you know, uh, helping other people or having a meaningful life that will do a lot to make you happy. Yeah, so, I yeah. totally agree with you. Yeah, that, very, very much. Again, very similar mindset. There's, uh, you know, Tony Tony Robbins says that uh, in, in a lot. Of, I've gone to a lot of his, his seminars, and he talks about this idea of the, the 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 science of achievement and the art of fulfillment. And he says that they're really not the same thing. And he, he, right. he you know, Robin Williams is an example, right? He, you know, he does this monologue, and he ends it by saying, "And then he fucking hung himself." Right. And, and he's talking about how like this guy had achieved everything in life. He had all this money at all these things, but he wasn't right. fulfilled. And that's, that's, you know, so critical. And it's funny. I'm reminded of that quote where, where they say, uh, you know, uh, money can't buy you happiness, but you have to have enough money to find that out or like to, <laughs> sure, yeah. yeah. and it's kind of true. Cause so many people don't realize, you know, when I, when I made a lot of money, I, I always wanted to retire and, and, and make enough money to passive income. And when I, when I finally reached the point of, of becoming, uh, becoming a millionaire, mm -hmm. I had this sort of existential crisis at that point because it was like, well, wait a minute. <laughs> I've been striving so hard for this thing that's right. going to make me happy. And it, it, it's 
what do I do next? What what happens next? And yeah. and that's where I started, you know, really changing my life around to to my mission now being, you know, the, the impact that I, I can make here, you know, helping programmers to, to have better lives, helping people to 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 discover some of the things in, in life that are more important than just the, yeah. the cash. And yeah, it's funny that. too, like chasing money, you, you end up finding it's harder to get. <laughs> right. But <laughs> right. <laughs> ironically, when you, when you're not, when that's not your goal, then money becomes an easy resource to, right. to, to, to achieve, yeah. which, which, uh, which is interesting because you can see that in your, and, and I also like the idea that you said that they had effective, it reminds me what you said reminds me a lot of uh, Rockefeller if you're familiar with his yeah yeah, yeah. there's a real good book called um Titan that I, that I read but but he yeah, was very know. much like one of the biggest stresses in his entire life was was this idea that like he had all this money and and it wasn't just, like he needed to give away a bunch of it but but he was so stressed out because he needed to do it and he couldn't even effectively administer it. So he had to like find people that could, could, because he wanted to be as rigorous and effective with giving his money. Mm -hmm. It wasn't just enough to just give money. Like he needed to check him out and make sure that he was, his being a good steward of what he was giving. Right. And, right. um, that's, that's one of the reasons, like, like you said too, that, that I, I donate to like my money goes to, orphans in india is because it's mm. like you've got such a power like i i have the ability with you know giving fifty thousand dollars or whatever to it's like it's like the impact of i mean i can change change hundreds or thousands of lives dramatically yeah with with that that amount and and it's uh i think it is a great it's a great rocket fuel for you to earn more money you know it's not <laughs> it becomes that that thing it's like the more money i make the more money that i can give that you know i'd love right. to someday give away a million dollars a year you know sure. to right and that's yeah. um and i think that's the thing too that that i think leads to uh not just happiness but also uh, a lot more power and resilience mm -hmm. is making it not about you, you yeah know? Like you are actually making it like ha doing something for yourself is actually one of the worst motivations really yeah. for almost anything. Um, and I think, you know, uh, you mentioned, um, you mentioned uh, Robin Williams. Uh, the, the person who I often make a connection to is Michael Jordan, you know, where you All win right. five title rings, right? And then you're just like, what am I even doing? Like, what's the point of this? You know? Uh, and like the, in a way, it's kind of it's it is really like the oldest story in human history, right? The Epic of Gilgamesh is about this guy who's king, and he's just like, "What what, what do I do now? I'm king." Exactly. You know? Yeah. Like it's like this is this is just you know it's so obviously a part of our machinery to want the shit out of something, finally get it, and to just immediately habituate to it overnight. Then you wake up the next morning and you're king, and it's like, okay, well, what now? Like, you know, it's it's just kind of background noise now, you know. Uh, and if you if you don't expect that, then it's kind of a rude awakening, right? Right. But, uh, but I think that is a consequence of making it about the achievement. You know, it's making it about like I want to get rich so that when I'm a millionaire, I do millionaire things. You know, and it, it, it's it's so funny because you get the exact same thing in poker, where the people who are motivated by money mm -hmm. are almost always the people who fail. Exactly. Almost always the people who do not succeed in poker, and I think it, that's in part because it makes you much more emotional. It makes you more short-sighted. It makes you make more kind of local decisions rather than like decisions that are optimized for the long run. Um, but it's just, I think it is also that like the people who are not motivated by money and they're motivated instead by getting really good or by competition or, you know, something 
other than just making money, um, they are way more resilient. You know? Exactly. And when they get to the next stage, they're like, cool, I'm going to go to the stage after this. And when they get to the next stage, I'm going to go to the stage after that. Right? Because there was no point at which the person who wanted to become the best stopped wanting that, you know, or like they're, where they have that need satisfied. Right? Uh, but the person who just wants money, you know, once they get to like, you know, uh, one, two or two, four, right? And they're like, oh man, I've got, I've got all this money now. Now I can start spending it, right? Exactly. And like they have, there are all these like plateaus, you know? But the person who wants just to be the best, that person is just climbing a straight mountain, you know? And they just know once I get there, I just keep climbing, you know? And once I get above that, I just keep climbing. And right. there's never a point at which you stop climbing because it wasn't about reaching a point, you know? It was about climbing. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, that to me, I think, is is an important difference in motivation to people. Yeah, yeah, yeah I totally agree. Especially like, the, like you said at the poker table, I think you know one of the things that like the, when I crush people's dreams is <laughs> with, you know <laughs> at the one two table, right? Because it's like, oh, I'm I, I just I made I made three hundred bucks tonight at the one two table playing for four hours, and like okay, well, well, you know that's good, and then and then I say okay, but you realize that like. If you're beating a game really effectively, you're you're probably you're making three big blinds an hour, right? That's that's a pretty good like you know your competition has to be pretty bad at a one two okay you know and I mean maybe you disagree maybe it's a little but regardless of what's three yeah. or five or, or one and a half big blinds an hour right. let's say it's three big blinds an hour well then like okay so so the math you realize the math on that right because the big blind is two. So that's that's uh, you know three times two that's that's six dollars an hour. Right. So, so if you're grinding it out effectively and you're beating the game, you should expect to make about six bucks an hour. I mean, maybe ten bucks an hour. Like, but are you right. going to sit there and make six or ten bucks an hour? Oh no, I can make way more than that. Okay, so you're not prepared emotionally for the deviation that you're going to hit because you're gonna, you know, you're gonna be up to. You want to make fifty bucks an hour? You're gonna be playing. You know, what is it? You know, you're you're gonna be playing. Well, actually, you're gonna be playing. You know, twenty five fifty because then you're only gonna have a small edge, and it's like if you're thinking about the money, you're not prepared for the 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 journey that you're going to go on. It's going right. to be a long slog. It's, it's about, it's, it has to be more than about the money because the money is like, it, it's just, it's, it's sickening to right. think that you right. spend that much time to make six bucks. Yeah, totally. Totally. All that. The other thing that I think, the money. Yeah, absolutely. The other thing that I think making the connection to programming, right. Uh, you know, I think the, the best analogy that I can think of is when I was in the coding bootcamp, you know, so this is, this is a cohort of people who are all essentially do, trying to do the same thing. They're right. all trying to learn as effectively as possible how to become good programmers and get jobs in industry. And you, know, you see just a gamut of motivations you know, running yep. the entire spectrum. And the thing that you, again, you most notice is that the people who are just, who are sort of you know, doing this out of fear that they might not be able to get a job are almost always the people who do the worst. Exactly. You know? um, exactly. And the people who are just like, I just want to get a job. I just want to get any job, right? They do worse than the people who are like, I want to nail the best possible job that I can get. Like, yes. I, want, I want a top tech company. I want to be a badass, right? Like, the second class of people almost always does well. It does better than the first class of people. And, you know, it's not obvious why, but I think one of the big reasons is that it's also like, if you're shooting, you know, if you imagine like, you know, there's this... Uh, you know, uh, what's, what's a good example? Um, like, if you imagine that you're trying to hit this wall, 
right? You're trying to like throw a ball up high enough to hit this mark, this line on the wall, and that line is getting a job, right? If you're aiming for the very, very tip top of that wall, you're just going to develop a much better throw than if you're aiming just to get above the line. Exactly. Right? And so if if your sights are set on like I'm going to you know get the absolute best job and be the best developer out of anybody in this cohort, right? Those people are going to end up becoming becoming the best because they're just you know when they're when they're swinging their bat, they're aiming for home runs, and everyone else is just aiming to not get out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That is such a huge difference in just the way that you're training and the way that you're approaching uh, your own development. Yeah, I, I totally agree, and and it also comes. I mean, it's it's that same. It's that fear greed mechanism that 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 we had talked about earlier at the yeah. at the poker table. It's like. I remember when I was, I mean, cause I, I did both, I drew the parallel between playing poker and, and trading stocks and I would put, I'd put at most I'd risk in either scenario. I learned from about 2% of my bankroll. Mm-hmm. And by doing that, I never was afraid, right? Like it was like, yeah. I could play fearlessly because if I, but if you've got a hundred percent of it in there and you're, right. <laughs> you know, you, you have, if you have $10,000 in your bankroll and you buy in for $10,000, if you put it all into, if you're all in that your heart is skipping a few beats, right? You're like, yeah. But you know, if, if that represents 2% of your total bankroll, you're like a, you know, I mean, it's not like you're, 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 you're executing from, right. from this mindset and the same oh thing when you're God. applying for the job is if it's yeah. like, I got to get this job or, yeah. or like, I just want any job that, you know, either the fear or the greed, right. you, you end from that place where you're, you're going to perform poorly. But if you're like, well, I've got this plan. Here's what I'm going to do. I want a top tech company. I'm going to apply for, you know, five jobs a day. I'm going to execute on this and yeah. it will take me, you know, it's a numbers game. If I apply for a hundred jobs, I'm probably going to get 20 callbacks and then I'm going to get right. five interviews and I yeah. might have three offers and now I'm going to execute this plan. Right. Then, then you're not coming from that place of desperation. Totally. Totally. I mean, so, uh, I know we got to wrap up soon, but one, I guess, nugget of advice that might be useful for some of your listeners that, I would often give to a lot of the students at App Academy when I was uh, sort of coaching them on, on job searches. Um, I mean, I think one of the tough things when, you're, uh, when you are looking for a job, right, is whenever you go into an interview and you don't have a job, right, like it, it feels like the stakes are so high. Because if you do well, you have now just built the next stage of your career. And if you do poorly, then, you know, screw you, you'll never get a job again, right? Like, so th- it feels, you know, interviews are designed to be high stakes and intense. Right. right? Uh, and I think definitely, you know, having a background as a poker player and dealing with those kind of circumstances helps. Um, but, I, but I think the advice that you can leverage uh, to sort of kind of emulate what a poker player essentially does is like treating each interview that you go to and each experience, you know, uh, uh, in the job hunt as purely for learning. Yes. Like, yes. Like you, you go into an interview and you're like, I you know, actually it doesn't matter whether or not I get this job. I probably won't get it, but right. I'm just going to learn as much as I can from this experience for the interview that I will nail. Right. Exactly. So like, I don't know whether or not I'll nail this interview, but I'm going to learn as much as I possibly can. And, you know, like just take it in as a source of, of, of practice essentially. Yep. Uh, and what you'll find is that eventually one of your practice interviews, you will land and you will just get the job. Right. Exactly. Uh, but the important thing is like, I think the important thing is lowering the stakes, you know, yep. because like, like you said, when you sit in at a table and you have 100% of your bankroll, of course you're not going to make the decisions, right? Of course you're not going to play good poker. But if you sit in there, you have 2% of your bankroll and almost nothing is on, is really truly on the line. 
all you're really doing is just gaining information and learning, then you're groovy, you know, you're made. Yeah. Uh, and so that I think is one really fundamental difference that you can just start making is just shifting your perspective on what you're doing when you go into a job interview, right? Never need it. That's what's important. Like when you go into a job interview, remind yourself that you don't need it. Like right. you will actually be okay even if you don't get this job. And that's just solid advice in general. I mean, heck, if you're going to pick up a girl, <laughs> yeah, yeah. right? You don't, there's, I'm just going to go and have fun and just, this is, it doesn't matter if I get shot down or not, right? It's like, like this, this whole attitude. In fact, I just had a guy that, that asked me that said, he emailed me. He's like, I've been following your advice, John. I got the job interview. He's like, I need your help. This is urgent. He's in, he put all caps in the subject line. How yeah, am I yeah. going to get this job? I need your help. And I replied back to him and I was like, I was like, go in there. And I, just like you said, I said, learn. I said, right. expect that you're not getting this one. That's fine. Expect that you're going to need nine no's. This is your first no. You're right. going to need eight more after this, and then you'll get your job. Come in with that expectation. Don't, doesn't mean don't try your best. Do your best. Yeah. Do yeah. the best that you can. Be right. as pleasant of a person. Try to, you know, do the, do the best that you can, mm -hmm. but don't come in it with arrogance or, or need. Just, just come in there like, I'm here. If you if this is a good match, this is great. I'm here to learn, take notes, like figure out what you stumbled on, yeah, and figure out how the next one is going to be slightly better than this one, right? And assume that it's going to take nine tries. And oh. if you come in with that mindset, maybe you'll get this one, and it'll be great. You're you're going to have a lot higher chance. But if you don't, it's fine because right. that's like you can't put it all on the. No one operates under that kind of pressure, like with a gun to their head. Yeah. You know, it, 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 a lot of developers too, like they 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 want to. I quit their jobs and start a startup and something, right? Or something. And I'm like, okay, don't, the worst thing you could possibly do is save up like $50,000, quit your job and, tr and go into Starbucks and think you're going to create your, your, your company being an entrepreneur. Cause it's like having a gun to your head where it's like, <clears throat> you're under so much pressure in that case mm -hmm. that, that you're likely to fail. And, and you are likely, you're probably going to fail 10 times trying to be an entrepreneur. So give yourself enough chances to do it. You know, again, I think we could, we could draw so many parallels to poker. Like if you, <laughs> you have to play a lot of hands, sure, yeah, yeah. you can't I, put it all on one hand, you know, well, it's I, like, I, I somewhat disagree with you on the very last point you made about yeah. entrepreneurship. Um, I think, I think it depends. There's definitely a spectrum, right? If, uh, if it would take you multiple years to build up another reserve of fifty thousand dollars, depending on like how good you are at saving money, right. uh, then then I think that's 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 somewhat of a true point. But I think there's also this counterpoint of like uh, you know it's like what we talked about of burning the boat. You know, right. uh, I do think that there is something really valuable there. Where if this is like your only escape hatch is I got to make the startup work. Uh, you know, like I think that a principal example of that is Airbnb itself. You know, where okay. like it just brought out the fact that they had no options. But to make the startup work, like you know, they started selling uh, cereal that was branded from like Obama and McCain, right, back in two thousand eight, uh, and they just had they just had to make it work. Otherwise, they were you know the founders were just screwed. Uh, and I think that uh, that can bring a lot of hustle out of somebody that 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 isn't easily accessible. That uh, if you're just like working on something on the side, isn't there? Now that said, I totally agree with you that uh, you know you should absolutely validate. The startup that you want to found from a safe and you know a low risk place because you're absolutely right that like chances are any given startup is going to fail and you want to like fire off as many uh, attempts or sort of as many probes as you can and know which is actually the highest expectation to be a good startup and then go embark on it once you actually see okay you know putting up a, a landing page and some Google Ads shows me some traction so I'm going to like 
go and start really investing full time in this. Um, that I agree is a good approach. Um, but I think there is also something really valuable in just kind of like throwing away the key and being like, well, shit, I got to make this work now. Yeah, that's a good point. I, I guess there's kind of a contradiction there between burning the boats and then, it, you know, you know. I think I would I would say like because I agree with what what you're saying here. I, I think the difference for me would be like if you are used to being a lion in captivity, hmm. you can't burn the boats because you're you're not a wild animal. Like you've got to burn the boats with smaller things first. Hmm. Get the confidence in yourself. Like you know, if um, if someone someone who has done that before goes and, and they are they're like, I have to make this work. They, they know what it takes. Right. They're willing to like, you know, it's, and then a lot of people I think halfway burn the boats. They set the boats on fire and then they get in the burning boats and try to sail back. Side of the boat and like try to, you know, <laughs> totally capsizing. Yeah. Yeah. Which is like the worst thing that you could possibly do. It's either burn the boats or leave the boats. Like you're either right. going to escape or you're going to, or you're not. But if you set those boats on fire and then get in there, you're sink. you're definitely, and so many people do that because they're like that line in, in captivity. They've been working for someone else for such a long time. They've never experienced what it's like to, to, to do the thing. And so if you've mastered a few things in life, I think you've got more of that ad advantage. Whereas, you know, and, and you're still doing your, your due diligence, but Right, right. But yeah, I think there's a balance. It's kind of a weird, it's, it's, I, I, but you know, life is full of contradictions. I think there is a weird contradiction yeah. here between like, there's some value in, in, in just burning the boats, but then there's like, you know, don't, don't step on. <laughs> yeah. I mean, obviously, yeah. Don't, don't throw away your life savings, right? Like that's also a good principle to, <laughs> Yeah, I guess it's you know it's 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 like the gamble. It comes back. You could you could maybe you could look at the the EV the <laughs> what's your expected value on this this move. And if it's yeah. like if positive EV, then burn the boats and let's go and let's put a one hundred percent. But what I found too is that your EV sort of like increases based on how how far you're willing to go, how much you're willing to burn the boats. It's right. like right. the person who's that determined who will I will eat ramen soup you know, and, and, and like, I will live, I will sleep on the floor of my friend's apartment. Right. Like I'm going to that extreme that ch their chance of success is, is greatly increased. Whereas the guy that's like, well, you know, I'm making 120,000 a year. So I'm going to save up 50,000 and hopefully in a year with this new startup I'm doing, I'll be able to replace my $120,000 income salary. So I'm going to go into Starbucks and, uh, well, I don't want to work too much. So I'll go do like seven hour days and, uh, and, uh, you know, I got to keep, take the weekends off and, uh, you know, <laughs> oh, and I need an office space. So let me spend some money on that. And I better get the highest, you know, best computer that I could and, and equipment. That person is like the line in captivity. Like they're in, yeah. in my, in my, you know, mind that they're not ready to burn the boats. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that makes sense. And, and there's also always um, opportunity costs that you have to take into consideration, right? So even yeah. if even if locally it looks like this thing is, uh, you know, like, oh, this seems like a good startup idea, this would make me some money. Um, probably true, there are a lot of startup ideas that I think would make some money. Um, but it's a question of like, okay, what if you, what if you instead worked for another couple of years, made your normal salary and, you know, potentially moved a little further in your career, but also had that vantage point to see any other opportunities that came along in the next two years that might be better. You know? Right, um, and so like you always have to, you always have to weigh those things against each other. Which is another thing that I found: most people who have not been like poker players or you know magic players or chess players or something, uh, they just suck at thinking about uh, counterfactuals and opportunity costs. You know, it's I, for whatever reason I don't know why, but it's like not something that we train people 
to think about, you know, uh, oh, right. yeah. educated people. And I think it leads to a lot of really large mistakes uh, where people make sort of locally optimal decisions that end up just being worse for their overall trajectory. Yeah. By the way, if you got to go, just let me know. But uh, I, I, do, I do think I have to, I have to run because I have to, okay. have to work. Yeah. But, okay. Uh, this conversation has been a total pleasure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Same here. Um, I want to give you a chance, real quick, if there's anything you, you want to point someone to 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 visit your your site, or, or if you, I don't know if you've got a YouTube channel going, or yeah, yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah. So you can you can follow me on Twitter. I'm at h o s s e e b Hasib, and you can also uh, read my website. It's hasibq.com. Uh, and uh, yeah, if you if you're interested in any of the stuff that I've written about how to get into tech or uh, the story of my job search, it's all up there on my blog. Um, and yeah, thanks. Thanks again for for having me. This has been uh, this has been really enjoyable. Yeah, yeah, this has been fun, Hasib. I really appreciate you, you coming on here. I'm sure we'll have maybe we'll have to do this again since we <laughs> got so much to, to talk about. Yeah, sure. But I uh, appreciate it. Uh, and uh, yeah, uh, I'll, I'll talk to you next time. All right, it's been real. Take care. Hey, what's up? John here. Just wanted to make sure you aren't missing out. Only about half the content I put out is on this podcast. This podcast is created mostly from the audio from the YouTube videos I put out daily. When you get a chance, head on over to youtube.com forward slash simple programmer and click the subscribe button to get access to two to three new videos every day. Even if you prefer the audio format, make sure you subscribe at youtube.com forward slash simple programmer so you can check out what you might be missing.